Hello and welcome back to Security Insights, the podcast that takes a deeper look at today's most important issues in cybersecurity and beyond. I'm Stephen Pritchard, editor and presenter. There are growing concerns that quantum computing, with its immense power, can defeat the algorithms that underlie most cryptography, and so much of the fabric of today's internet. The threat ranges from breaking real-time encryption to Harvest Now decrypt later attacks, which could even go after encrypted data archives. Our guests today are both experts in quantum computing and how it could be applied to defeating cryptography or indeed to protect it. Rami Shalbaya is CEO and co-founder of Quantum Dice. That's a business span out of Oxford University's Quantum Optics Lab and which is now using quantum mechanics to create a self-certifying quantum random number generator. And Axel Poshman is a cybersecurity expert with a background in both industry and academia. Currently, he works at PQ Shield, another business with links to Oxford, and which specializes in quantum-resistant cryptography. It's clear that some great minds are working on the quantum security problem. But is this just the realm of academia, or should CISOs and boards be worried? First, I asked Dr. Shalbaya for his definition of quantum computing. Quantum computing is a pretty broad term. Uh, it covers everything from people who are looking to build a completely general purpose quantum computer, so on which you can run any kind of algorithm and do any kind of computational task, to more specific uh, and task-specific uh, quantum uh, architectures that are designed to use particular features of quantum mechanics in order to apply them to solve uh, computational problems in a more efficient or uh, in a better way. And I think that uh, the, the general, if you want to create a definition for it, if you want to look at all of the overlap between these different things, the general idea is you have a either one particular class of computational problems or potentially a, a general class of them, and you and you want to leverage certain properties of quantum systems, be it superposition, be it entanglement, in order to achieve a better performance in solving these problems. This can range from everything from reducing the computational complexity, making the problem more tractable as it scales, to doing things in a more energy efficient or, time, uh, or in a more time efficient manner. Uh, and core, the main thread of, of uh, the main common thread between all these things is that you're trying to use some of the unique features of quantum systems, superposition, entanglement, and so on. Uh, but that's not really what, what we do at Quantum Dice. We're not really focused on computing, but that's that's generally what, what I would say is a, a broad definition of quantum computing. Why would quantum computing be a threat to IT security or data security as we currently understand it? I'll answer it by, by referring to probably the most a commonly used example uh, is that certain cybersecurity uh, protocols that we have, certain encryption or cryptographic protocols that we have, are really only secure because they they involve uh, mathematical problems or computational problems that are very hard to do on a classical computer, which means that your security is tied to how difficult it is to solve a particular computational problem. There's no inherent impossibility in breaking this encryption. It's just very hard to do. It would require a lot of computational resources uh, in a way that's just unrealistic. Uh, 
so the challenge and the threats that quantum computing poses is that for certain algorithms and for certain encryption protocols that we rely on heavily, a quantum computer is actually quite good at solving those computational problems. So let's take a, a more concrete problem, which is something like RSA encryption, which relies on the fact that it's quite difficult to factorize a number. It's a complicated problem. And if you try to do that on a computer, especially if you have a large number, to try to figure out its prime factors, so the prime numbers that you can multiply together to get that number, uh, to get that on a classical computer, it's very difficult. And it's going to take a very, very long time. Uh, and so we can rely on that to secure some of our communications. We, we rely on the difficulty of this problem. But with a quantum computer, uh, with applying something like Shor's algorithm, we can actually relatively easily factorize a large number, which means that once we have the ability to do this, once we have the hardware that can do this in an effective manner, uh, the security of RSA encryption becomes compromised because anybody with a quantum computer would be able to break it by running the problem on that. If we get to a point where quantum computing becomes powerful enough to, and, and we will get to that point, it's just a matter of time, uh, then people will definitely use this because it's one of the most immediate applications. And of course, it's a very high value applications, especially for you know at the, uh, certain governments, certain intelligence agencies, it would be something that's quite important for them, even just regular malicious actors who just want access to data. Uh, and an even bigger problem is that uh, even if we don't have quantum computers now, there's this paradigm that people like to cite, which is harvest now and decrypt later, which means you just collect the data that you want to decrypt, that you want to, to, uh, uh, to know. Uh, you can't know it now because it's encrypted in a way that you can't easily break, but you save it until you can. And once a quantum computer is there, you can just break it and then figure out what that information is. Um, and that sort of brings the problem more, makes it more immediate rather than makes it something further ahead in the future. What type of actors would you anticipate doing this? Is it likely to be security agencies or is it likely to be cybercrime or could people do it for purely purposes of academic interest, but then that gets exploited on the dark side? I think that at the beginning, it probably is going to be more institutional because of the cost associated with building a quantum computer. But as that goes down and as they become more widespread, you could see just regular malicious actors who are there to steal some data. Uh, but uh, but yeah, I think that the threat of this coming from more institutional actors, whether it's large intelligence agencies or governments, is definitely there. Uh, I think that people doing it just out of curiosity is, I wouldn't say that's a threat. Uh, I would say that's more of, a, of people like white hat hackers. Their goal is to uh, sort of show vulnerabilities and show where systems can be can be easily broken into. Uh, and I think that that that, it, that part of it isn't I wouldn't really considered a part of the threat. But really, the threat is when it gets into the hands of people who want to use this data either for their own personal gain or to gain some kind of leverage. But I think that most major quantum computing companies in the world, especially the ones that are in the UK, have very strong ethical principles about who uses their systems. However, uh, as with any kind of technology, once you once it's invented, once it's out there. It's quite difficult to control. Uh, it, it would be it, it would be silly to assume that only one company is going to be able to make that breakthrough, or only one area in the world where that breakthrough could happen. Uh, I think that uh, some people might have uh, 
good ethical guidelines, but then the clients that they sell to might not share those guidelines. And the more the technology spreads, the more it becomes more uh, widely used, the the less control you have over it and the less control you have over what people do. So even if you do care, uh, ultimately, once it gets to a point where it's more widely used, there's very little you can do about how people use it. I don't think, for example, that you know companies like Dell or Apple or any of the companies that build current day computers necessarily uh, are okay with people using them for malicious ends, but they also know that it, there's a limit on what they can do to stop people from doing that. Well, there's a parallel there, isn't there, with the large learning models where we've seen people take those and use them to write phishing attacks or to find malware and so forth. In terms of protecting data assets, and you talked about this possibility of harvesting data and then somebody decrypting it in the future, what should organizations do? In fact, what can they do to protect themselves? Because again, this is a, you're talking about quantum, but it's an unquantified problem, isn't it? Yes. And it's that's generally the case in a lot of cybersecurity. I think what you should do is you, there are a number of companies out there that can help you make a sort of internal audit of your vulnerabilities. And you should start looking at what ways you can mitigate, right? There are new algorithms that are currently being developed that can mitigate against the risk of something like this that are not easy to break even on a quantum computer. So I think that's that's sort of be part of the cyber strategy of everybody now is to look at, okay, this is coming, how do I protect against it? This, in addition to a number of other cybersecurity concerns, at the end of the day, there is not a single cybersecurity concern, there's a, there's a combination of them. And we need to appropriately give each the attention that it deserves and work to resolve it. Uh, there are ways of resolving it, of course, but I think what's more important is to make sure that by resolving it, you're not opening yourself up to a new threat or a new type of attack. Uh, so it's a complex thing. It's going to require constant active work. Uh, there's no simple magic bullets that, if, that you can use that would make everything go away. Uh, it's a process of making sure that your systems are not vulnerable. And I think a lot of companies are already doing that. What sort of timescales are we talking about? At the moment, these things are primarily in research institutions. They're not you know, off-the-shelf components that you can simply buy. But I think uh, I generally try to steer away from giving timelines just because I don't want people to try to embarrass me later with a quote that I said. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but I think that it's very difficult to give an exact number. Five to ten years can seem like it's an okay number, but really... The challenge is that there are a couple of specific challenges in getting quantum computers to be viable uh, at scale. And those challenges aren't just a matter of time. There's an element to them that's about, you know, it's about a fundamental barrier that needs to be overcome. Uh, and I think that that means it's going to be very difficult to give just a number of that. It's not like when you're saying, okay, we are at a certain process node for semiconductors now, and we knew that we were at another point 10 years ago, so we can sort of project in 10 years where we're going to be. Here, it's there is incremental improvement, of course, but there's also step changes that keep happening and inventions and discoveries that keep happening that make it come closer. So I think that uh, trying to forecast it isn't exactly, an, uh, in this case, an exact science. 
But this idea that organisations need to update the way they operate in anticipation of this problem and that CISOs and others will need to start looking at the security algorithms they use and how they encrypt data, how they transport data around, these encryption algorithms go very, very deep into an awful lot of what we do today on the internet, in particular business-to-business, business-to-consumer transactions. It must be very hard to decouple some of that technology from the processes it secures. So how much work do you envisage this being? Do you think this will be potentially almost on the scale of the millennium bug, where a lot of investment will be needed just to ensure that if the quantum computers that are being developed currently in the labs do turn out to be able to break the algorithms, we're not going back to some day zero of the internet. It will definitely acquire a lot of investment. And it, there is already a lot of investment being put into it at the moment. Um, and that's that's normal because, as you said, you are sort of not rebuilding, but you are updating the infrastructure of communications and how they're done. Uh, but I think that that's a process that a lot of people are already are putting effort into. And I think it's something that we're going to need to put more work into because... As I said, it's not just that you're trying to sort of address a problem that's completely well understood. Uh, You also need to make sure that you don't open yourself up to a new front. So for example, uh, certain post-quantum encryption algorithms, uh, people found out that they are actually vulnerable to classical attacks. So something like this, it's not just about, okay, I know that I have a these algorithms are vulnerable. I want to use ones that are specifically designed to address threats from a quantum computer. I need to make sure that they don't, that they themselves aren't opening myself up to a completely different vulnerability. So I, I do think that as if, if it's a matter of scale, it's a much bigger effort than what was needed to address the Millennium Bug. But at the same time, the sort of risk that comes from it is also significant. So I think that. And most people, I think, are aware of that. And that's why we see so much investment coming into this space. And how would you present this case to a board if you were a CISO? Cybersecurity is, should be thought of a bit like insurance. If everything goes well, and if everybody acts appropriately, you shouldn't need it. But you should still get it because you know that something is going to go wrong. And the scale at which things can go wrong can be huge. So yes, you commit some financial investment now and in a recurring way uh, that might not immediately show you the benefit. And in fact, if they work appropriately, you should never even see what the benefit from them is. But that doesn't mean that it wasn't important. And, and, and I think that the Millennium Bug example is quite a good one because a lot of people outside of the IT community, outside of the computer science community, uh, thought that this was a not a hoax, but it was overblown. The problem didn't end up being a problem, specifically because they didn't see the tremendous amount of work that went into trying to into making sure that it doesn't become a problem. But I think that a board should should consider hypotheticals and should consider counterfactual situations. When we're discussing this, we're not discussing adding a cost that, that is just to add it. We're discussing adding a cost to mitigate a potential risk. And that risk can be quantifiable, right? You can look at how much money can be lost to either ransom attacks or a wide range of attacks that have caused data leaks. And what you're paying here is basically an insurance premium. And you, it's up to you to decide whether your, uh, your data is worth it or not. 
But I think that most large companies understand why insurance is important and they should then understand why cybersecurity is important. Rami Shobaya there. For Axel Poshman, it's really about the threat posed by cryptographically relevant quantum computers. These can attack very specific parts of our day-to-day security systems, as he now explains. For our field, um, cryptography uh, and the cryptographically relevant uh, quantum computers, it's clearly that they are able to solve a class of problems much, much faster and efficient uh, than classical computers. And that's exactly what the threat for um, our cryptography is. Uh, These computers are very good in solving um, two sets of problems, the integer factorization and the discrete logarithm problem, which are most of our public key crypto schemes are based upon. So they have the potential to break the cryptography that is being used on a daily basis? Yes, correct. Not all of it. So hash functions and symmetric cryptography, stream ciphers, block ciphers, they're safe. You just need to increase the key lengths to mitigate the quantum threat. But public key cryptography, um, like digital signatures or key exchange algorithms based on RSA and elliptic curve cryptography, they're absolutely vulnerable and will collapse. And a huge amount of systems depend on public key cryptography. So give us an example of how widely used that is. Pretty much whenever you use a password or whenever you look up a website and there's SSL used or TLS, every time you, yeah, every time you you open up a website, a um, key exchange happens and a signature is, sorry, a certificate is exchanged. Um, every time you, you you type a WhatsApp message or signal, uh, every time then you use uh, public key cryptography. So it's 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 everywhere, right? Whenever you boot up a, a device, a laptop, a a computer, or an IoT device, um, whenever there's a boot sequence, those boot images are validated using digital signatures, and all of these digital signatures use public key cryptography that's vulnerable to quantum uh, computers. And when you say vulnerable, what does vulnerability look like? How quickly could they potentially break these keys? So that's also not um, zero or one, right? So there's um, there's a different, uh, there's different trade-offs involved. But for that, the notion of cryptographically relevant quantum computers is quite handy. And that determines that point in time when quantum computers have evolved to a state that they're so efficient that it's for an attacker feasible to break RSA and ECC um, systems. And that's, um, depending on who you ask, a couple of years or sometimes even say uh, a couple of decades out, but a common understanding is that's five to ten years from now, we should be uh, witnessing a cryptographically relevant quantum computer. So in five to ten years' time, are we talking about them being able to break that cryptography as it's happening? That's where the greatest risk is to business, to industry, to government, and so forth. Yes, correct. But there's also the threat of harvest now decrypt later attacks. So when you just 
dump um, the encrypted traffic on a huge hard drive. And you can do that now already. And then in five to 10 years time or 15 years, whenever a cryptographically relevant quantum computer is available to you, you just revisit that encrypted traffic and can then decrypt what has been exchanged. So it goes further than live transactions over the internet. It could potentially include encrypted data archives, that type of thing. Definitely, yeah. So this is a huge problem, on paper at least, from an academic point of view, it's a huge problem because people are researching that. When you talk about these relevant computer systems coming out of the quantum world, though, who is likely to be building them? Because at the moment, it's only really research labs that have access to this type of thing, and they're not particularly scalable or even particularly stable at the moment. It's very much in the experimental realm, isn't it? Yes. So there's, um, you're right, There's. Um, it's still in the research stage, but there's a, a huge uh, potential to quantum computers, not only for cryptography. There's a lot of challenging problems that could be solved with quantum computers. Uh, and even the, uh, like, like climate change, some people cite climate change. There's a lot of problems that are very, very challenging to be addressed with classical computing, but can be efficiently done with quantum computers. So there's also a lot of industry interest in uh, getting a quantum computer. At this stage, um, I can't say who gets it first, but um, I guess government um, funded research labs, potentially um, some of the big tech companies, they might be the first to develop a quantum computer. There's a lot of drivers for people to develop these because it has, as you said, useful applications. But are there any restrictions on this technology at the moment? I mean, for example, can someone, if they have sufficient funds, just start to build their own? I think as far as I'm aware, there's um, the usual technology restrictions that apply um, across countries. But as far as I understand, there's still some challenges in making the qubits um, stable. Um, for more than a few milliseconds. So the memory, if you want, is apparently still um, a heavily researched topic. And the error correction, which in, in increases the efficiency of these computers. And are we likely to see quantum computing as a service? Because that potentially could be the way that cyber criminal groups get access to it if they're already doing this to some extent with other uh, computer facilities you know you can rent a botnet to carry out a, a ddos attack for example uh, is it possible that organizations could simply run decrypting algorithms through some form of public quantum computer service or network and potentially the service provider wouldn't actually know that it was being used for criminal other nefarious purposes? I think clearly, yeah. I think the answer is yes. I think you can even rent quantum computers online. I think IBM has a service, but it's not very powerful. I think they were able to factorize 15 bits of RSA or something, or the number 15. So there's still some room for improvement. But clearly, this is um, once the computer, at some point, it becomes an economic uh, exercise and business decisions if you can rent it out if it makes sense to uh, use it um, in the cloud for example as a service so i yeah i would assume that there's probably a lot of companies betting on that and once the quantum computers are available uh, then probably we see these kind of services what then should chief information security officers be doing about this because as you said we're talking about this being five to ten years out 
of course, that might come forward as more people invest in the technology and it finds more legitimate applications. But there are a lot of issues that CISOs face right now that they're struggling with without worrying about things that are five to 10 years away. Yeah, you're right. Um, it's a massive undertaking. Um, it's on the scale of the Y2K buck. Some people call it Y2Q, years to quantum. The difference is that we can't know for sure when that 1st of January 2000 moment will happen for quantum computers because the initial actors might hide the existence in order to get advantage in decrypting uh, messages. So we can't say for sure when this moment happens. But there is some guidelines on the timelines for CISOs, and that's the guidance that comes out of the government agencies um, forward pushing on post-quantum security. Uh, the NSA has published the CNSA 2.0, the Commercial National Security Algorithms uh, version 2 um, guidance. And that sets out a clear timeline for CISOs to look at. And it's not that far out. So uh, let's say signat software signature verification. Uh, already in 2025, you need to be compliant by supporting new algorithms. So the timelines are increasingly being pulled in for, for CISOs to, um, to um, I, I would say, increase the pain, unfortunately. But luckily for CISOs, 80% of the issue is a supply chain issue for them. So whenever they have a new refresh cycle for their IT equipment or appliances, they can just ask, is it quantum secure? Uh, and then it's, you know, it trickles down the supply chain to the vendors who then need to upgrade their cryptography. And there's also been work done by NIST around this so standards yes. that will come so, out next year, is that right? Standards coming out next year? Yes, correct. Just um, two months ago, um, NIST published the draft standards of three algorithms, one for key encapsulation mechanism, Kyber, or MLChem. Then there's another one for the digital signature algorithm called MLDSA or Dilithium. And also Sphinx Plus, a hash-based signature scheme. Falcon comes a bit later. And the final standards uh, will come out next year, uh, which gives a lot of clarity for people to start the roadmap. Because once these standards are out, now all the test standards and um, regulations can be updated to point to these standards. For example, if you want to get a FIPS 140-3 certificate, you can't use any of these new post-quantum standards from NIST now. But once they are becoming standards, then the documents can be updated to reference these standards, and then you can get FIPS 140-3 um, certified with these new standards. So is it simply a question of going through what you have in terms of your encryption? That's precisely right. So the transition journey is probably a multi-year massive undertaking for any CISO. And it starts with crypto discovery. You need an inventory of your cryptography. What kind of algorithms do you use? Where is it used? For which kind of cybersecurity service it is used? You need to get a good understanding of these algorithms. Uh, and then you can identify the quantum vulnerable, which is everything public key needs to be ripped out and replaced. And for the symmetric and the hash functions, the parameters might to be adjusted, which means less performance and potentially longer key sizes. 
But once you have done that, yeah, I would say 80% of that is a supply chain issue for CISO because it's happening so at such a fundamental level of the tech stack that it's clearly probably in some of the appliances. Most of it is happening in the appliances and these vendors then need to be questions when they can provide a quantum safe option for their appliances. And they really need to start work on this now. Yes. Uh, the, the reason is compliance. I mean, first, if you have data that needs to be secure in 10 years and you don't want anybody to retroactively hack that in 10 years and read it now, then you have to start immediately. Um, the draft standards are most likely to become the final standards next year. You know, it's a wise point to start um, implementing it and playing around with it already now because you, it takes a couple of steps to replace um, all of these algorithms. And the second one is compliance. And as I mentioned, um, the US is really, really pushing forward with the CNSA 2.0 with aggressive timelines. We believe that soon sector-specific guidances and compliance requests will follow. It's hard to predict whether and when the cryptographically relevant quantum computer will be available. But in order to comply with regulation that's pushed down, and also because, as you mentioned, the implications are so severe, it's just um, the right thing to prepare for that. Because once a cryptographically relevant quantum computer is there, we can be sure that all these primitives are broken and completely broken. And, and therefore the entire system is compromised. Dr. Axel Poshman on how ultimately creating quantum safe systems is a supply chain and a compliance issue rather than an existential threat to the internet. That though is all for this episode of Security Insights. In our next program, we'll look at the ongoing challenge of cybercrime and its impact on everyone who operates in cyberspace. Our guest will be the security expert and Europol advisor, Raj Samani. You can listen to that in two weeks' time. Until then, do catch up on our past programmes on the website, securityinsights.co.uk, or subscribe and rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon and Spotify. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>